Well, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22? Let me give you a little background. If you're new with us especially, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, and we find ourselves in Matthew 22, which is right in the middle of the final week of Jesus' life before the cross. And things have been heating up, uh, especially since two days earlier, the Lord cleansed the temple, which means he overturned the money-changing tables. He drove out the animals. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But this really upset those who made money off these concessions. And so the next day when Jesus came into the temple area to teach, the Pharisees and chief priests confronted him. And uh, they challenged him by what authority he had. He cleansed the temple. And who gave him that authority? That was at the end of chapter 21. From there, Jesus launches into three parables back to back to back, basically telling them through these parables that the nation, because it had rejected their own Messiah, because its leadership was corrupt, and, uh, and now the kingdom will not be coming, but instead God's judgment is going to fall. Well, this starts a kind of a tag team, because his enemies want to find something they can use against him to condemn him to death. And so they come with these questions, trick questions, hoping that they can you know, kind of get him to say something they could run to the Roman government and report him for, and they would have him arrested and crucified. You know, the first one was, is it lawful to pay taxes for Caesar? Well, that's a loaded question, right? Uh, we talked about that. Our responsibility to God and country, which we studied last week, based on that passage. Well, uh, Jesus, when he said to them, show me a tax coin, a denarius, and asked them, well, whose picture in inscription is on this coin? They said, well, Caesar's. <laughs> Flipped it back to him, said, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Astonished at his saying, they walked away, you know, their tail between their legs. Couldn't respond to that, all right? Well, okay, guys, you guys are up, so here come the Sadducees, okay? Verse 23, the same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And by the way, that's why they are sad, you see. <laughs> the Sadducees came to him and asked him, and then we just stopped there. All right, so here we see this confrontation. Not that Jesus is being confrontational, but his enemies are. And uh, who are these Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees were another sect of Judaism. Although these guys were liberal in their theology, they didn't believe any of the Jewish scriptures were inspired except the Pentateuch, which is the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Those were the only ones they accepted as inspired and authoritative. The Sadducees were ultra-materialists, ultra-materialists, who didn't believe in the supernatural. And because they didn't believe in the supernatural, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in miracles, and they didn't believe in life after death, what Matthew simply calls resurrection. Now, because the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death, it caused them to look at this life as if it was everything. In other words, all of their time and energy was consumed in the pursuit of pleasure, power, and wealth. They gained power by cozying up to the Roman government. And because of it, Rome, who liked the Sadducees, they were very pro-Roman, the Sadducees, they were materialists. When you're a materialist, you make friends with whoever can enrich you on a material or physical level. 
So they got close to the Roman government. The Romans liked the Sadducees, so they put them in charge of the temple and its concessions. The concessions were what Jesus cleansed the temple of two days earlier. The concessions consisted of the money changers, because the, these guys had passed a little law saying you couldn't, because Jews would come from all over the known world to come to the temple and give offerings to the God of money and so on. But the, these guys said, no, you can't give to God that corrupt Roman coinage. You're going to have to trade it in for temple shekels. That's sanctified stuff, all right? So we'll exchange your defiled Roman currency and give you these temple shekels that you can give your offering to God. Okay, what's wrong with that? Nothing, but they were charging exorbitant exchange rates, ripping people off who had come to worship God through the giving. Same thing was true with animal sacrifices. The law said you had to bring an animal to sacrifice to God that was perfect, without spot or blemish. Well, they had priests all in the outer court where these pilgrims would come with their animals to offer to God and uh, at the temple, and the priests would examine them over and over until they found one little flaw, reject the animal, and say, well, not to worry, we have some pre-approved kosher animals that you can purchase. Trouble is, these animals were going for about 10 times the rate you could buy the same animal out in the street for. So they were ripping people off. They had turned God's house into a house of merchandise. And so he takes a cat of nine tails, and he goes in there, and he pushes over the money changers' tables. He drives the animals out. He says, my father's house should be called a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves, etc." Well, this really irked, to put it mildly, those in power who made a lot of money off of these things. And by the way, that's how they got so wealthy. Because they got cozy with Rome, the Sadducees. Rome put them in power. The concessions brought great wealth into their coffers. Okay, uh, And of course, with wealth, you can buy physical pleasure, material possessions. So this is where these guys were coming from. But I want you to understand what they believed directly affected how they lived. I want you to see that. It's the basis for this whole message. It was because they didn't believe in life after death that caused them to live as if this life was all there was. And of course, if that is your philosophy of life, that there is nothing more after this, then you're going to be very materialistic, aren't you? In fact, we could sum up uh, in a little model form these guys to a T. And that would be, let's eat, drink, and be merry now, because you know what? <laughs> when this life is over, it's over. And you only get to go around once in life, as the old saying goes in advertising. So you got to grab for all the gusto you can. I think it was a beer commercial, wasn't it? I don't know. It was a long time ago. Um, but the idea is that, look, those folks who re reject the idea of a hereafter are going to focus on this life as if it's everything. And we see a lot of people in our culture doing this very thing. Living like this life is all there is. So many, and the number is growing, in our culture who believe that when they die, that that's the end. And because of it, these folks today, like the Sadducees back then, mock the idea or the belief that we evangelicals have, we Christians, in life after death. In particular, they mock the notion that there is coming a day of judgment. Now, in our text this morning, we can almost hear the dripping sarcasm of the Sadducees mocking Jesus for teaching this. Teaching what? Teaching that there's life after death. Teaching that there's a judgment coming. So we, we kind of hear this mocking sarcasm, which was behind, really, this extremely ludicrous hypothetical story that was designed to make the idea of resurrection look ridiculous. Let's pick it up in verse 23 again. It says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, 
Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also died. The third died even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now, I don't know about you guys. As I'm reading this for the first time years ago, I'm thinking, you know, if I'm the seventh brother, I'm not eating this gal's cooking. Because, you know, they're all dropping like flies, right? But that's just me. But the whole thing is really based on something from the law in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, where Moses said, or God says, speaking through Moses, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. What's going on here? Well, you have to understand something that having an heir to pass along your inheritance to was very important in Israel. And I'm speaking primarily of the inheritance that God gave to each of the tribes in the area of land. Remember when God brought the children of Israel into the promised land under Joshua? At one point, they divided up all the land and it gave a portion to each of the 12 tribes. I take that back. Levi did not get a portion because they were the, um, uh, the servants of God uh, and uh, their inheritance was the Lord. But every other tribe got a piece of land. And then they divided it further among the families of the tribe so that each family owned that piece of ground in perpetuity, all right? And the idea was that you had an heir that when the father died, he would pass that uh, piece of property and all his other earthly possessions to that son or sons. The girls, when they got married, they got to benefit from their husband's inheritance. So it was, it was passed down to the guys. Unless he had no sons, then the girls would have an inheritance. But the question is, this guy, he married a gal, had no son when he died. Second uh, brother married her, you know, because to do the right thing. You didn't have, I don't think God mandated this, that you had to marry your brother's wife. If you weren't married, you had to marry her to raise up a seed or raise up a child for your brother because that would keep his family name going. I don't think God said you had to do it, but it was, it was really a disgrace if you didn't. But the idea is that you know, that was the honorable thing to do. And so they come with this question, you know, kind of a, one of those ridiculous hypothetical questions that are so out there just designed to trip you up. You know, really, they really weren't looking for any kind of an answer. They thought they had them for sure. No matter, you know, how can he answer this question? We've got it. It's like the person who comes to you and says, you know, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? No. See, then he can't do everything. See, you guys think your God can do everything? We got you. No, you don't got us. First of all, it's a dumb question. Secondly, I give you the point. No, God cannot do everything. What? That's right. In fact, I'll go a step farther. There are things that I can do God can't do. But you're crazy. No, I can lie. God can't lie. I can lust. God can't lust. I can steal. God can't steal. Look it. God can do anything he wants to do. But because of his nature and character, there are things he would never do. But this idea of making a rock so big you can figure out that, you know what? Let's get to the real issue here. You're going to hell. Do you, do you care about that? Can I help you with that? Talking about dumb rocks. 
this is the real issue, right? And that was the real issue with the Sadducees, which we'll talk about more in a moment, because Jesus is not just concerned about answering the question. He wants to correct the faulty theology connected to the question. So here they come with this question, airtight question, they thought. So we see Jesus answered them in verse 29 and said to them, you are what? Mistaken. Let me just stop there, okay? The Greek word could be translated in error or deceived. And the simple truth for those who believe that this life is all there is, that there is no life after death, and as such there will never be a day of reckoning coming, to these people, Jesus is simply saying, you are in error, you are deceived. You have deceived yourself. And why were these guys deceived, the Sadducees? Well, Jesus said you're deceived, what? Because you don't know the Scriptures, nor the power of God. We know that the Scriptures, what we call our Bible, God calls it light, which is a metaphor for truth. But the Bible is God's light that he gave into the darkness of this world. Darkness is a metaphor in the Bible for deception. Who is the God of this world? The devil. And the devil has sown into this world all kinds of lies, all kinds of deceptions, that when people buy into these things, they come away with a worldview, they come away with an idea of what life is all about that's completely skewed, completely twisted. It says, the, as the writer of the Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to a man or woman, but in the end thereof is the way of death. And the devil knows that he, if he floods the world with enough ways, and doesn't sound very tolerant, many roads lead to God. Well, I don't know where you got that from, but Jesus said there's only one road that leads to God, it's him. He said the way is narrow. Only a few find it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. Now, if you want to argue with Jesus about that, that's up to you. But the world, which the devil controls, says there are many roads that lead to God, as long as you're sincere. Jesus said, no, because you can be sincere and still go to hell. I am the only way that leads to the Father. You have to come to him through me. Heaven is only through me. But the devil has filled this world with all kinds of lies, all kinds of deceptions. We see it everywhere. And God has given to us his truth to be light, to guide men and women back to him. See, he made us originally in his image in the Garden of Eden, put Adam and Eve, gave his truth to them. The devil came sowing his lie. And man bought into the devil's lie and fell. And since that time, he has been groping in spiritual darkness, trying to find his way back to God, not knowing even who that God is many times. But God has given us light. His word is light, a light to my feet, a lamp unto my path. If I walk in that light, it will guide me safely back to God and will give me a path in life that will be where he wants me to go. But God's word, Psalm 119, verse 130, the psalmist said, The revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding. I will have you turn to one passage, which is one of my favorites on the subject, Psalm 19. And I like to read, read it to you out of the Amplified Version. It's a little loud, but I think you can handle it. But the Amplified kind of emphasizes words and gives you a, a more full understanding of what's being said. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7, the psalmist said, The law of the Lord is perfect. Let me stop there. All these things he's going to say, the testimony of the Lord... Uh, the uh, commandments of the Lord. It's all metaphors for the word of God, okay? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the whole person. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
the commandment of the Lord is pure and bright. Say it's light, enlightening the eyes. The reverent fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold. There's your wealth. There's your wealth. Right there, the word of God. They, the scriptures, are, are sweeter also than honey and the drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. A Hebrew word that means reminded, illuminated, and instructed. And in keeping them, there is great reward. So the scriptures, you would think that these scholars would have understood. But see, these were liberal theologians, these Sadducees. And liberal theologians, liberal pastors, don't give a lot of credence to the word of God. They, they give it lip service. They take thoughts from it and maybe some moral principles. But they don't believe it like we do as evangelicals. That it is the very word of God inspired down to the smallest detail. We'll talk about that more in just a moment too. But first of all, Jesus indicted these Sadducees because they were ignorant of the scriptures. Look. The Bible never says in either the Old or the New Testaments that the husband-wife relationship is going to continue in heaven. We know as evangelicals, we know as New Testament believers, God's word clearly teaches that marriage is for life. That's true. But that the marriage covenant is broken in death. That's why we, when we marry somebody, we say until death do you part. The marriage covenant is broken in death so that the remaining partner is free to marry again without being an adulterer or an adulteress. Paul says this in Romans 7, verse 2. We know in Genesis chapter 2, God said that he created marriage for two primary purposes, for companionship and for procreation. Neither one are going to be needed in heaven. First of all, we talk about companionship. Heaven is going to be a place where all of us have our glorified bodies. And the special companionship that marriage provided for us on the earth with one another will not be necessary in heaven. You say, well, why not? Because we're all going to be married to Jesus. And the companionship we have with him is absolutely perfect. Plus, because we're all the bride of Christ as Christians, we're all going to be connected to each other in a way in heaven we can't even imagine right now. The love that you have for your spouse, you might have the strongest marriage on the face of the planet with the strongest love attached to it. But you know what? As strong as it is on earth, that love for the whole family of God and for Jesus Christ, your love here will pale by comparison to that. So it's hard for us to understand that. But it's going to be true. But neither will there be a need for procreation because in heaven there's going to be no death. Therefore, there's going to be no need to bear children to replace those who have died. That's what God said, you know, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. Because people die, we need to replenish them if the species is going to continue. It won't be necessary in heaven. So these guys were ignorant about the scriptures, first of all. Secondly, they were ignorant of the power of God, Jesus said. Look, they didn't believe that God could raise the dead. Yeah, to me, that's bizarre. If God could form man and woman out of the dust of the earth in the first place, why can't he, if they die and their bodies return back to the dust of the earth, why can't he you know, resurrect the dust, reassemble the molecules, cause the body to be back together, and glorify it so we can live in eternity with him? There's a lot of people who don't believe the Bible because of the miracles. And I tell them, look, if you can get past the first verse, and usually they do believe the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word created there is a Hebrew word, bara. It means to speak into existence something out of nothing. If you believe that God spoke the entire universe into existence out of nothing, then what is so hard about him raising the dead? 
You know, if he gives life to people in the first place, why can't he give life again to them? Or why is it such a big deal that Jesus walked on water, turned water to wine, cast out demons, uh, did all kinds of miracles? Why is that so hard for people if, you know, you can get your mind around God is big enough to create the whole universe with just the word of his power? You know, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, he admired Christianity but didn't believe in the miracles in the Bible. So you know what he did? He edited the New Testament. He took a New Testament and he cut out all the supernatural stuff and just left the moral principles. I have a reproduction at home called the Jefferson Bible. All right? Because he felt like, like, well, miracles, I can't, nah, I can't buy those, but I'll just leave all the moral teachings. Well, it was the miracles that authenticated Jesus' ministry as being from God. Anybody can teach moral teachings, but Jesus backed them up with supernatural power to show us. He said at one point, John 14, to his disciples, look, if you don't believe me, who I am for the words that I speak, believe me for the sake of the works that I do, because they testify to who I am. When Gabriel, the angel, appeared to Mary, the 16-year-old little virgin gal, and said to her, God has chosen you to be the mother of the Messiah. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of the Most High will come upon you. He will impregnate your womb with the seed of God. A son will be born to you. You are to call his name Jesus because he will save us people from his sins. And she said, I have never known a man. How is this possible? And what did Gabriel say? Well, it's tough. You know, God's going to have to work real hard at it. But we think in heaven, we're rooting for him. We think he can pull it off. He said, with God, nothing shall be impossible. How big is your God, right? All right, the confrontation. How about the correction? At this point, Jesus is not content just to answer their sarcastic question. He wants to correct their faulty theology. And to do that, since the Sadducees only accepted, really, the writings of Moses as inspired and authoritative, guess what Jesus does? He quotes Moses to prove the validity of the afterlife. Verse 31, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Here Jesus quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If he had said that, it would have meant that these men had ceased to exist. But by saying, I am the God of these men, the Lord made it clear that these three men of faith were, at that time, still alive spiritually, even though they had died physically centuries earlier. Paul the Apostle put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. He said, when our body dies... Our spirit moves out and goes immediately into God's presence. The body may die, but the real me, which is not the body, the body is a vehicle God has given my spirit to live in. The real me is spirit. When this body dies, I'm going to move out into the presence of the Lord. And when the rapture happens, I'll receive a new body. This mortal will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. God's going to give me a body suited for heaven. This body can't live in heaven. I mean, it's not made for it, any more than it's made for outer space. The idea is that God will give us a brand new model. Aren't you glad for that? Because this model is wearing out real quick, and I'm looking for that new model, all right, with all the nice little bells and whistles, all the little, you know, the, uh, the upgraded version. 
But look, along these lines, I want to point something out very important from what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 32. I want you to notice that he based the truth of a critical doctrine, listen to me, on the tense of a verb. That it was in the present tense as opposed to being in the past tense. What does that say to us? Well, it tells us that Jesus believed that the word of God was inspired down to the smallest detail. Now, he made that very clear back in chapter 5, verse 18, when he said, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. At that time, we said a jot and tittle are two of the smallest markings in the Hebrew alphabet. It would be like us saying, not one dot of the I or cross of the T of anything God has said will pass away until everything God said is fulfilled. Jesus was telling us that the word of God the Bible or the scriptures are the word of God down to the smallest detail. In fact, Paul, you have to turn there, in Galatians 3 verse 16, uses the fact that a noun in the book of Genesis was singular instead of plural. And from that, Paul used that to prove a very important doctrinal point. These men had a very high view of scripture. They believed the Bible was inspired by God down to the very smallest detail. Uh, let me have you turn to a classic passage on this, 2 Timothy 3. And let's pick it up in verse 16, where Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, means teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, or the woman of God, of course, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work that God leads them into. And all God's work is good, obviously. But I want to key on the word inspiration there. The word inspiration is a translation of, a Greek, of the Greek word theonoustos. Theonoustos literally means God breathed. God breathed. The idea is that all scripture has been breathed out by God. And that's an interesting way to put it, because back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read, it says, And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The idea is that God breathed life into the scriptures the same way he breathed life into Adam. Even as the book of Hebrews declares, the word of God is living and powerful living and powerful. Just as Adam was the direct, direct creation of God, whom he breathed life into, so too are the scriptures. And yet, I want you to understand this, they were written down by human authors who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So God breathed into them what he wanted them to say, and they wrote it on paper, parchment. Turn to Second Peter 1, because Peter talks about this. 2 Peter 1, verse 20, Peter said, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. No prophet said, oh, I guess I'm going to prophesy today. I think I'll prophesy. No, they had to be moved by the Holy Spirit. But holy men of God spoke and wrote, of course, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Again, God breathing into them His Word, and they wrote it down on parchment, scrolls, and so on. Look, I want you to understand this. I'm not going to get into a whole class on this, but uh, as the Holy Spirit moved each writer of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, 
the writers didn't just take dictation. That's very important you understand that. The Holy Spirit allowed each writer's personality and style to come through in their writing. And yet, the Holy Spirit was the one who superintended everything, oversaw the process, so that the final product was absolutely error-free in the original manuscripts. The classic evangelical position with regard to the scriptures is, is described by the phrase verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? Well, verbal inspiration means that every word of scripture is God-given. God breathed everything, every word. Not just thoughts that we kind of, you know, draw from the text. Every word is there. In fact, we've talked about the punctuation marks, the tenses of the verbs, the plurality of the nouns, everything, every jot and tittle has been placed there by God and is God-breathed. That's verbal inspiration. Plenary is a word that means all parts. In other words, all parts of the Bible, not just every word, but all parts of the Bible are divinely inspired and authoritative. Now, guys, this would include things like genealogies, all right? Um, I'm sure that everyone here, when you get into the genealogies in the Bible, you're just, you just really perk up. And uh, as you read name after name after name, you just stop along the way and go, man, this is exciting reading, Lord. Thank you. And I'm not saying that you should get real excited about genealogies. If that's where you're coming from, God bless you. But most of us obviously have no, nothing about these names. These people don't mean anything to us. Uh, we skim through it, obviously. We don't really spend much time on it. But based on what we just said, every word in those boring genealogies was also placed there by God. If you doubt that, let me show you something. Turn to Genesis chapter 5. You doubt what I'm talking about. Let's look quickly at one genealogy. It comes out of Genesis chapter 5. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to pick out the parts that I want to bring out to your attention. In Genesis 5, verse 1, here's what we read. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Adam literally means man. Man. In verse 3, Adam begot a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Seth literally means appointed. Verse 6, and Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. And Enos literally means subject to death. Verse 9, and Enos lived 99 years and begat Canaan. Canaan literally means sorrowful. Verse 12, and Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. Mahalalel literally means from the presence of God. Verse 15, and Mahalaleel lived 60 and 5 years and begot Jared. Jared literally means one comes down. Verse 18, and Jared lived 160 and 2 years and he begot Enoch. Enoch's name literally means dedicated. Verse 21, and Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. Methuselah's name means dying he shall send. Verse 25, and Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. Lamech literally means to the poor and lowly. Verse 28, and Lamech lived 180 and two years and begot a son and called his name Noah. Noah literally means rest and comfort. Let's take 
the translations of each of those names, put them in a single sentence and see what the Holy Spirit might be trying to tell us. Ready? Man appointed to death, sorrowful. From the presence of God, one comes down, dedicated. Dying, he shall send to the poor and lowly, rest and comfort. That's the gospel. Hidden in a boring genealogy. You're never going to look at genealogies the same again, are you? I'm not saying you're going to become a genealogy freak or anything like that, but it's uh, something to think about. I personally believe, guys, no matter how much we study the Bible, we're only scratching the surface. You know, in Hebrew and Greek, the two languages the Bible was primarily written in, every letter has a numerical equivalent. And I believe that someday in heaven we're going to find out that the Bible was the greatest uh, mathematical equation ever given to mankind. Already, because of computers, scientists and things are taking the numerical equivalents and tracing numbers across the scriptures and coming up with all kinds of events that were prophesied in the Bible that people never realized because computers had not been invented. Well, maybe it goes along with what God said to Daniel in the last days. Knowledge will increase. People will go to and fro about the face of the whole earth, and then people will start understanding more fully what I'm saying. Let me bring this to a close. I want to end by pointing out something. As you can imagine in your mind's eye, here were the Sadducees face to face with Jesus on that day. These two were in conflict with each other, and they represent the conflict we see going on in our society between two opposing worldviews. On the one side, like the Sadducees, you have a belief you have those who hold to a belief system from which they have formulated a worldview which drives their lifestyle. Here is their philosophy of life. There is no God. The physical universe is all that there is. There is no life after death. Therefore, I can live any way I want because there is no God to answer to and no day of reckoning coming. Now, if that's your philosophy of life, if that's your worldview, it's going to drive the way you live, right? You will pour everything into this life. You know, with Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes has said, God has put eternity into our hearts. But you can beat that out of your heart by just embracing the world more and more. Where you stop thinking about the life to come and maybe don't even believe in it anymore at all and just focus on this life. The very thing the devil wants you to do, he's the God of this world. He has orchestrated this world to appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Everything is designed to get people sucked into a worldview that says, this is it. Grab for all the gusto you can, because when it's over, it's over. And of course, you don't have to be an atheist to believe something like that. Although I do believe that is at the heart of the neo-atheist movement in our country today, where you have more and more people becoming atheists all of a sudden, all the young people, by the way. Why is that? Well, I personally believe it goes along with what Paul said in Romans 1, that God has placed in everyone's heart the knowledge of him, but people want to live in rebellion. People want to live the way they want to live, so they suppress this knowledge of God in their desire to live unrighteously. And that's why they become atheists. I mean, if you want to live your life the way you want to live it, you want to live your life for sexual pleasure and material possessions and all these other things, and you want to violate everything God has said about what's right and wrong, well, you're not going to want God looking over your shoulder putting guilt on your heart, right? So what do you do? You've got to get rid of God. And that's what's happening. Uh, it's just sad to see what's happening in our culture today. And a lot of it's with the young folks. 
But if they do believe in a God, he or she or it is all about love and tolerance. You know, it's interesting how unbelievers who do believe in God, their God is always a very loving, tolerant God who would never judge sin. In fact, sin doesn't even exist, you know. Uh, but, you know, my God would never send anybody to hell. That's right, because your God doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination, okay? Instead of fabricating a God that goes along with how you want to live your life in sin, come to the Bible and find out what God says about himself. So you have on the one side those who embrace this, this hedonistic worldview, eye to eye with those of us who are Christians who represent Jesus Christ. And it's our responsibility to lovingly give to them the truth, as Jesus did to the Sadducees. It wasn't just about answering a question. It was about correcting their theology because he did care about these guys and knew there was an afterlife and knew that if they didn't get their lives right with God and repent for their sins, they were going to spend eternity in hell. But, you know, the world laughs at these kinds of things. I remember seeing Bill Maher, all right, uh, who was uh, an atheist and calls himself a comedian. I don't think he's funny. But he, he rips apart people of faith. He did a movie some time ago and was out there... Uh, uh, filming Christians, you know, ridiculing them, and came across one guy, I think, passing out tracks, and um, started to challenge him and belittle him and ridicule him. And the Christian said at one point to, uh, to Bill Maher, he said, well, Bill, what if you're wrong? And Maher shot back, well, what if you're wrong? And then the camera cut away. I don't know if the guy responded to that or not. But here's what I would have said if he would have said this to me. Well, what if you're wrong? Bill, if I'm wrong, when I close my eyes in death, I cease to exist. I will never know I'm wrong. If you're wrong, when you close your eyes in death, you're going to open your eyes to a horrible, a horrible eternal reality. And you're going to have an awful long time to think about how you were wrong, how you were so stubborn, so proud, so arrogant, you wouldn't even entertain the notion there might be a God. Why? Because you didn't want God looking over your shoulder, Bill. You wanted to do your own thing, live your own life, without God telling you what to do. So you kill God, but you don't kill God. You can do away with God in your mind, but you're going to stand before him in truth and bow the knee to Jesus Christ someday, as everyone will bow the knee to Christ and confess he is the Lord of all. But it's our responsibility to try to reach people. But to those people who, like the Sadducees, just, they, they, they have embraced this way of thinking. We, we should just, in love, say to them, as Jesus said to the Sadducees, you know what? I hear what you're saying, I, I, I hear where you're coming from, but you are mistaken. You are in error. You have deceived yourself. You've allowed the devil to come into your mind and to deceive you in your thinking that there is no day of judgment. Look, the Bible clearly teaches from Genesis to Revelation that God is real, sin is real, heaven and hell are real, and eternal, by the way, and everyone who has ever lived is going to be resurrected someday to stand before Jesus and give an account for the life that they have lived while on the earth. I'll give you one more scripture we'll close. Turn to John chapter 5. Someday everyone who has ever lived is going to stand before Jesus Christ. See, how do you know that? Because Jesus told us that. In John chapter 5, the Gospel of John, starting in verse 22, here's what Jesus said. In addition, the Father judges how many people? No one but instead has given the Son absolute authority to judge everyone. Verse 24, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message, the gospel, and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. And they will never be condemned for their sins. They're never going to go to hell. 
but they have already passed from death into life. Verse 25, And I assure you that the time is coming, indeed it's now here, when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about what Paul the Apostle was talking about in Ephesians 2. That before we got saved, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And once we listened to the gospel and received Jesus Christ, we were born again. We were resurrected spiritually and given a new life. At that moment, we became believers, right? We were saved. That's what he's talking about. He's saying the time is coming. In fact, now is. When the dead, spiritual dead, spiritually dead, they're hearing the, the good news, the gospel. If anyone will receive the good news, believe I am who I claim to be, receive me as your Lord and Savior, you'll be raised from the dead spiritually. Now, he goes on. Verse 26. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted the, the same life-giving power to his Son. And he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming. Now, he doesn't say, and now is. This is a future time. For indeed, the time is coming when the dead in their graves, not just spiritual dead, these are physically dead people, will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good, in other words, those who have believed in me and done the works to prove it, rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. What is he talking about? He's talking about now a future resurrection. And he doesn't differentiate between, there's two of them, two main resurrections, one for the believer, one for the unbeliever. He doesn't separate them here in John 5, so it sounds like they're all, it's one big resurrection. We know from Revelation, it's actually two resurrections divided by at least a thousand years. The first resurrection is for the righteous, those who have received Christ. That resurrection takes place when the angel shouts, the trumpet blows, and we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the rapture, where all those who are dead in Christ are going to be resurrected. In other words, when, when we die as Christians, our soul and spirit move out to be with the Lord. Our body it goes back into the dust of the earth that's buried, decays. At the time of the rapture, the Lord Jesus is going to resurrect our physical bodies, make them glorified, and reunite them with our soul and spirit at the rapture, if we've died before that. Now, my vote is that we all make it to the rapture. Okay? I'm talking to the Lord about that. I'm, he's taking it under consideration. But, but here's the thing, okay? That's the first resurrection, all right? Bodily resurrection. Now, the unjust stay in the grave, which their soul and spirit are in Hades, um, which is not hell. It's a separate place. And they remain in this place called Hades, a place of torment, until the end of the millennial kingdom. After the rapture, Jesus at one point comes back to the earth, establishes his kingdom, thousand years passes, millennial kingdom, thousand millennia, and then the Lord shouts. And, and when he shouts to the dead, they all hear the shout in the grave, and they come forth. Bodily resurrection, Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment is set up, and every one of them stands before Jesus Christ, and gives an account of the life they live. Of course, they're all going to hell because none of them receive Christ. And so he says at that point, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. The lake of fire is hell. That's the eternal place of punishment. Now, here's the thing, and we're done. 
This is the day of salvation. Jesus, there was so much more at stake than just answering a trick question by the Sadducees. They had no idea they were playing around with their eternity. Here they're asking dumb questions to trip him up, when in reality, as um, Jonathan Edwards said, they were walking across an icy plank over the pit of hell. At any time their foot could slip and they would plunge headlong into eternal destruction. They could die at any time. People are playing games with God. They could die at any moment. And so Jesus Christ wanted to correct their faulty theology by telling them, look, there is an afterlife. There is an afterlife. God did not just make you for this life as if this is all there is. There is a purpose in it. This is a prelude to eternity, and everybody is going to spend eternity in one of two places, either in heaven or in hell. Now, God sent his son that everyone might have an opportunity to go to heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, whoever believes in Jesus might have everlasting life and not have to spend eternity in hell. And so God is extending his hand to the entire human race and saying, look, I want to save you. Take my hand. Believe in my son. I'll pull you to safety. Right now, the wrath of God is abiding on you. Hell is hanging over your head. Come. Come to my son. I'll save you. And you can have a glorious eternity with me and my kingdom. Like the Sadducees, so many people are so locked into the material world, into this life, they just will not I hope if there's anyone in this room who has not really made a commitment to Jesus Christ, after all we have said today, that you will think really hard about that, but don't wait, don't take too long to think about it, because like I said, tomorrow is not promised to anybody, so this is the day of salvation. If God is speaking to your heart, come on up here so we can talk with you, pray with you, give you a Bible, and hopefully you leave this place today knowing that you are a child of God. And when you close your eyes in death in this life, you will open them to an eternal life of glory. As Peter said, inexpressible glory, filled with joy that will never fade away. May God give everyone the grace to make the right choice. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are such a kind, merciful God. And Lord, the devil had, had all of us at one time in this room, in his clutches, in his deception, the darkness, Lord. We thought we, were, we knew the truth, but many of us did not. And yet you loved us, you pursued us. You sent people across our path to witness to us. And by your grace, Lord, slowly the light began to come on, our eyes began to open, and finally we understood. The word of God did its work, we fell on our faces and received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we stand here today redeemed, children of the living God, destined for an eternity that is full of glory, inexpressible joy. But Lord, for those who don't know you, we pray for their souls. Open their eyes, Lord. Cause them to see what you've allowed us to see. Save them, Lord, right here in this room. Save our loved ones, our family members who don't know you. Open their eyes, Lord. Give us grace to be a light in the darkness. We thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.